Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today, you'll never believe, is a Stanford graduate with PhD in biological studies. Turned to Amazon sellers, not for profit or not for selling, to make an impact on businesses who are trying to make it big. So she is extremely motivated by making an impact, leaving a mark, a positive one, of course. So she started her company. She's the CEO and founder of Alpha Zeta Management, which is a full-service Amazon agency that specializes in food, beverage, pets, and baby categories. So outside of work, she's got three kids, but still she finds time to go outside and spend time in the nature. So with that, everybody meet my guest, Jean Stamberger. Welcome to the show, Jean. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks for having me on. You know, what I really enjoy is people who try to make an impact mm. because nothing motivates them. And in fact, this reminded me of a little interview. It's a CNBC interview. Mark, there's a guy there, Mark something is his name, Mark Faber, I think. He was interviewing Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. And you know how Elon Musk talks. He's like, yes. expressions are very limited. And he said that your tweets, he said, people get upset. Mm. They don't like some of the things you say. Your stock goes down. Millions take a hit. What do you have to say about that? You know what he said? No, what did he, he say? He like looked puzzled, like <laughs> thinking like very deep. And says, there is a movie, I forget which movie he was referring to. This man was chasing to find the man who killed his father hmm. for years. Okay finally finds him and he's about to kill him. Okay. So driven. And the man says, listen, I have a lot of money. I have a lot of wealth. So name it. Name your price. Right. He says, give me money. Give me fame. Give me anything you want. And he stopped. He stopped. So, and then the the interviewer says, "So, it's what you have to say. You're gonna say it, no matter what." That sounds like Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the point is, that's what purpose does to you. Yes. So yes. that's why I enjoy. It's a bit of a long in- intro to our episode. But you know, purpose. there's nothing I like better than being compared to Elon Musk, though, Nick. So, you know, I'll take it. 
listen, right. no, it's the, it's the conversation. You know, when you when you are there to make an impact and you have a purpose, nothing really matters because you're not pretending, right? You're not pretending. Your knowledge is just just a vehicle. That's right. We love helping our clients. We really enjoy getting into the details with them, helping them solve their problems, see a bigger picture. One of the reasons why we really like full channel is it gives us limitless levers that we can use to optimize profit and sales for our clients. And we love it. We love trying to poke Amazon to find out where the loopholes are. We love seeing the journey of a client and how we can improve margins over the journey of a client. Um, and so it's been, it's been really fun. Yeah. So I've been doing this since so, 2016 and it's just been a blast. You are. And also it's always changing, right? It's, it's always keeping always. you on, on your toes or always good. So this is actually a good segue into what we're going to talk about today, because when you and I connected and then we're discussing what can we talk about, and then when you shared something that you discovered uh, during your time working with clients, something that you discovered that, that helps these sellers. So tell me what, what that was. Loopholes for margin optimization. More so, which is your favorite spot, right? So it is. <laughs> so, I mean, people do all kinds of things, of course, to uh, increase margins. So as uh, white hat techniques and black hat techniques. So where does this land? We are white hat, completely white hat. And but you've got to be smart hat about it. And you've got to put the smart work behind it to make it happen. Okay. So um, what, what, another thing I like is not working so hard, but working smart. So, yeah. uh, so yeah. tell us, share with us some of these uh, loopholes, so to speak, that can give you better margins. So some of these may be familiar to listeners, some may not. But you first of all start out with you know optimizing your offering to the customer and to Amazon FBA pricing. So that's first of all offering something that will give you the best return for your investment for every time you sell a product. The second one is looking at long-term optimization. So how can you improve over the life of the product, your margins? Ads are always something that we wanna talk about because it's a potential source of large amounts of spend and it kind of can run away from you. So we're really gonna talk about how you make sure ads work for you and don't ruin your margins. And the last one we want to touch on is just tools to do it, such as retrospective analyses. And we'll also want to just give you a couple tips and warnings about how to not go wrong when you optimize margins for a product, because there's some things that look like a great idea, but won't work out in practice. Okay. All right. So I've heard four extremely valuable things. And the first one we're going to talk about is putting FBA tiers to work for you instead of against you as a cost, right? So I especially like that one because I have recently developed a model that will automate that whole process. I love so I'm it. intimately <laughs> familiar with it. So let's jump right into that one. So tell us about what that means to you and, and how you go about doing it. Sure. So... And for sellers that are selling an FBA, Amazon has different prices for their FBA fees depending on your product. Some of them are depending on the product type, like if it's an aerosol or if it's apparel. 
most things will fall into standard packaging or standard oversized. And what Amazon really likes is things that are kind of flat and small, like a book. That's where you kind of can get the most bang for your buck. As you get into bigger size tiers, like most, you know, CPG products um, occur in, what you can do is you can amortize those fee costs by looking into selling bulk packs, for example. And what you really want to do is you want to find the biggest box within that size tier where you can stuff the most products in because that allows you a high selling point, but it amortizes that FBA fee across all those sales. Amazon has a tool. It's an Amazon revenue generator tool that allows you to figure out what that is for a certain product. It's got a couple um, caveats in it. What it doesn't allow you to do is it doesn't tell you where your margin is going to be better, right? It'll tell you what your margin is, but it won't tell you how to tweak it to improve it. Um, some other tips are when you're stuffing things into a box for Amazon, know that Amazon measures the outside of a box, but a box seller gives you the inside dimensions of a box. And so that box will be in practice, it will measure a half inch to an inch larger on Amazon. So those are, you know, so don't get caught, you know, measure your actual box size when you send something in. The other thing to know is that Amazon doesn't really change the physical size of the tiers, but it definitely changes the fees and sometimes what it what it prefers to weight preference on. So the calculator is based on weight and size. And historically, Amazon has changed the weighting from being uh, more expensive for things that are particularly heavy or things that are particularly large. And so they're also introducing new programs and taking them out, like the Slalom Light program was just discontinued in August. And there are other changes that constantly happen. For example, last year, they experimented not only with a Q4 storage increase, but a Q4 FBA increase. Now, it was small compared to storage, but as I was talking to Jenny, one of my colleagues, it is head spinning to keep on top of this. So what we recommend is check in once a year with your agency, usually like around February. That's kind of when they decide to change their fee tiers, at least historically, and see what your margins are with these new changes that Amazon had implemented. And if you need to do anything to improve your margins. The other thing is keep an eye on what they're charging you. So sometimes Amazon will do spontaneous fee checks and they'll remeasure. And sometimes they'll be wrong. Their automatic tool will measure you wrong. And so if you find out that it's wrong and request a remeasure, you can actually get that money back that you've been overcharged. And so those are some of the ways that you can work with FBA fee tiers. The other thing that you want to keep an eye on is what are your competitors offering? So kind of like when we make FBA tiers work for you, it also means we've got to make your product work for the customer. And what does that mean? And so some things to know are that if you're trying to do a second to market approach and maybe you've got multiple items, you want to offer something that's very comparable. The per ounce or per unit calculations that Amazon has and displays in their in their little widgets that they show to customers, they're not accurate. They're often not accurate or one person can be measured per unit, another person can be measured per ounce. So a customer doesn't really have a good feel for making an apples to apples comparison when products are different. So one way to kind of get around all that is to make your products as similar to the competitor as possible and then underprice it as a second to market strategy. 
Also, another thing to take in consideration when you're looking at margins is that your competitors may have not optimized their offering. We see unoptimized offerings for margin all the time. So don't necessarily, when you're trying to do a second-to-market strategy, run into the trap of offering something that is going to kill your margins. Um, we take an approach of you want to grow on Amazon while you're making money. We want to grow you, you know, exponentially, but with margins that meet your needs. And so we don't often recommend putting products in that are loss leaders, for example. So the other thing to know is that there are magic numbers. Um, so customers tend to buy things between $25 and $75. For items that you can sell more than one at a time, if you want someone to try out your product, a $20 to $30 price point is great. If you want to give bulk buys for loyal customer, you can shift their prices all the way up to $70. But beyond that, they don't tend to buy, right? So if you have an offering for a bulk buy, and let's say it's a great deal, the unit price is small, but you want them to buy $150, those don't tend to perform well. Also, it turns out trial packs don't perform well either, but that's a whole new discussion that we can get into. The other thing and to think about is that if you have a premium product where a single unit is high, let's say it's a $6 bag of chips, a $6 for one bag looks expensive, but people aren't really great at math. <laughs> and so you know, eight bags for $48 actually sounds better. It sounds a little cheaper because, you know, oh, it's almost 50 bucks for getting eight things than $6 for one item. And so you can kind of use a little bit of the psychology of the customer. You can appeal to their nature to buy in bulk and get a discount for their price. And all of these things will fit into your overall strategy to optimize margin and grow sales. So that's kind of one big thing that we want you to talk about. Another thing that's interesting to know is that Amazon has been sending emails lately about a program where you will ship pallets of product in. And Amazon is always trying to shift the behavior of the consumer either to buy single items uh, under $10 or very, very high dollar values such as B2B sales of pallets of product. Now, now we, we just want to say, watch these with a caveat, because usually the number of emails that Amazon sends is an indicator of their desperation to move this program, not necessarily an indication that's going to have a great ROI for you. So mm -hmm. before Amazon shut down their tracking of who was buying what, we could see that small offices would often buy multi-packs of useful items. Um, so there, it definitely is a B2B exchange going on, but once you get into very high prices, um, they don't tend to move on Amazon. So it'll be interesting because Amazon's been effective at changing consumer behavior. And so we'll see what else they can do. Um, but I think it's pretty early right now to invest in expecting large pallets to be sold on Amazon. Yeah. Well, you've really got a, a, full agenda of things just under FBA optimization. So let me share with you some of the things that we've done. Yeah. And this is as recent as last week. Okay. So I have a client and he sells a product that is a good fit for home offices, offices or anything. Right. It's something if you want to bundle a bunch of things together and then put an elastic band around it mm -hmm. uh, then 
you want to be able to label those. Yes, sure. How do you label a bunch of things put together with an elastic band? There is no such thing. So he invented this product. By the way, this oh, gentleman is an inventor. He invented something that to this day, uh, General Motors use. That's incredible. We love working with inventors and they meet a niche on Amazon that's really unique and, and yeah. they make people's lives better, frankly. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so we're working with him. Of course, selling these things as one single piece is not an option because it's a band. It's a, it's a band uh, type of product. So he sells them in packs. So he, in his own mind, he created these packs of 12. Mm -hmm. Even the 12 elastic bands with a nice little uh, component, it's it's still a very small item yeah. and low ticket, low ticket item, sure. which is yeah. not good. We don't want to sell low ticket items. So, so we said pack. So in the end, he said, look, Nick, you figure it out. <laughs> I just invent, I don't understand this. You figure it out. So I sat down and uh, working with my project manager, I said, what we need is we need to plug in the dimensions and the weight and the unit cost. Mm -hmm. And from that, I want something that's going to tell me for this many pieces in this tier, you can put this maximum number. Yep. of core units. Yep. In this tier, you can put this maximum uh, number of core units. So very simple. And then from that, just work out the margin. Yeah. So that I can see exactly, okay, first of all, I don't want to guess how many pieces and I want it to tell me how many pieces, then all I need to figure out is how I'm going to pack it. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, I love it. So we, we built this model, okay? So as we are working through it, I'm trying to reverse engineer the numbers that Amazon has as for FBA fee. And by the way, I spent about seven, eight years in transportation and logistics running my own company. So I'm intimately familiar with how shipping companies operate. Right. So there is this concept of volume weight. Uh -huh. In other words, you know, people people don't understand when I say, well, you need to consider the volume weight. Which one is greater? They don't understand it. So it's just for my listeners, my favorite joke to explain this is I ask the person, okay, which one is heavier? A, a ton of lead or a ton of cotton? Which one is heavier? And and then they start giving me these answers. Oh, you know, the, the lead is heavier, but I can hold the cotton with... Well, See, listen, listen to the question. A ton of lead and a ton of cotton. Which one is heavier? And then finally they say, well, they're the same. So of course. Now, if I was sending a vehicle to pick up a ton of lead or versus a ton, of a ton of cotton, how many vehicles will it take to, to load a ton of cotton? Because it takes up too much space. It says, oh, okay. So that's what it is. So what Amazon is doing is it's translating how much space the item takes up right. into an actual pound. 
that you that's, can make. that's right and sometimes they they do you know prefer weight um you know they'll, they'll take weight into account right because um particularly if they are looking at whether pallets can be stackable or not because of course you know if you can stack pallets you can get more into a truck so sometimes they'll change their calculation slightly to prefer one or another um but i love your story it's great and um I love your calculator. It's awesome. We tend to, we do the same thing where we look at whole suites of product lines and then we optimize within them. And then we're also optimizing for customer experience, like, um, you know, the loyal customer bulk buy, the introductory offering to a customer and putting like those kind of intangibles, right? It's not a number, you know, there's not a number for a great introductory offer for a customer, but so we put kind of the soft data in with the hard data. Um, but I love what you talked about. Our tool doesn't yeah. quite do what you said. It's pretty awesome. Well, I mean, let me tell you this. So this thing about using the actual weight uh, versus that volume weight, right. it's a very simple formula. What Amazon does is it, it basically takes the actual weight and then calculates the volume weight, which they provide the formula. It's all the dimensions multiplied, divide by 139. Right. That gives you the pound equivalent. And then they compare. Is right. that pound equivalent greater than the actual item weight? If that's the case, then they go with the pound weight. So imagine, so if something is 1.3 pounds, but they their calculation shows 2.5, they're going to charge you for 2.5 pounds. And that's what becomes the FBA tier. Right. So when, you, when you're looking at your margin, you really need that kind of expertise to help you understand why your margin is what it is and how to get out into a lower margin tier. And you're right. It could be dominated by weight. It could be volume. Amazon's a real stickler for the minimum dimension of a physical length of the package. If you're slightly right. over it, you get bumped up to another fee tier. Um, and so, you know, so one of the things to consider also is packaging, right? You were just talking about, you know, how do you optimize the offering in a package? You know, is 12 great? One of the things that we see for products that are not coming from the inventor, but maybe destined for retail already, is they'll come in a point of sale container. And oftentimes the Amazon customer has been trained to not need that. If you think about the point of sale container, it functions to sell the product on the shelf, right? It has a certain look and feel, a certain size protection, but all of that is not how customers buy on Amazon. They buy on the screen. So once they get the point of sale container, it's kind of useless most times because the sale has been completed. So the Amazon customer kind of over time has been trained not to expect the point of sale container. Now there's a whole other conversation that we can have, we'll talk about in the warnings about when to not remove it, right? If it's protecting your product, if it is giving the appearance of a safety seal, you know, those are kind of things where, or if your product is particularly premium and you want that premium look and feel with a package or if it's designed for gifting, all of those are situations where you would not want to remove that point of sale container. But for most other products, you can jettison it and you save the cost of the point of sale container and it makes it smaller. So you yes. can stuff more in that box, right? Um, and it's interesting that example that you have a bands because there really is an optimal price point and there's an optimal minimum price point that you want to sell on Amazon to make money. 
And when you've got an item where, you know, maybe the average user only needs to use 12 bands, but that doesn't meet your price point, you really have to think out of the box now for how we can get that price point up, meet our margins and meet the customer's needs. So it's an interesting challenge. Yeah, yeah. So basically the question is, how many pieces can you pack into one single SKU and sell it as a multi-pack? Right. Without increasing your FBA tier size. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah so that's and- going to give you the lowest fixed cost on it your will. fulfillment while building a much greater perception or perceived value for the product because you are selling X number of pieces all bundled into one. But you know, the best part of that uh, approach that you put right as the first thing to do is when you have these packs, X number of pieces in a pack, Amazon will list in the search results unit cost. I mean, they'll show, they'll show from whatever, uh, if you have variations, but at the end of the day, they're going to put in brackets how much per piece. Right. And when you compare that to competition, that's a big advantage, right? It it is. And I'll tell you, that's the one thing that Amazon tends to get wrong a lot. And um, Amazon gets so much right, you know, for running such a big company. The, the reason it kind of gets it wrong is that, you know, you can you can list these characteristics differently um, compared to you versus your competitor. There's a per ounce cost, a per unit cost, for example, if we're thinking about the food world. And if you don't have an apples to apples comparison or if the numbers haven't been entered in the back end correctly, you know, there are, there are 120 columns in some categories for entering in all the information you need for an ASIN. You know, you you know, it's easy to make a mistake. Um, and so those are not really um, consistently able for a customer to do that apples to apples comparison, which is why we suggest the loophole of if you're using second to market, make it look really similar, right? Make it look compatible and then undercut the pricing to give customers an opportunity to try your product and an incentive. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, th- this is great conversation as far as FBA, mainly because we just spent like two, three days building that model. So you could just plug in and see the tiers change and the profit drops and or increases. So it was uh, great. So I, I love it. let's cover your second point about the... Well, the long-term margin optimization. Right. So- so one of the things, it's good that we are talking about packaging because sometimes when you have a product designed for retail, it doesn't really fit optimally in Amazon size tiers. And we've had clients where, you know, they're just a quarter inch over the minimum. And so they jump to this more expensive tier. And when you're looking at long-term margin optimization, there are several things and packaging is one of them. That could be changing the box size, it could be changing the product size in that particular case, but there are lots of other things you can think about. One of the things that tends to impact our customers' cogs a lot are warehouses. So if you have a manufacturer or your private labeling, um, and then you send items to a 3PL, we've seen lots of challenges with 3PLs where Maybe their internal processes are not streamlined. We've seen where a customer 3PL had to touch a product twice before they could send it out, um, where they're overcharging you for stickers. There are lots of kind of process improvements that we could look at. 
One of them, for example, is the master case. So um, this only works for certain SKUs, but you can put items in your master case and then you reduce the number of FBA shipment stickers that you have to put on. You basically slap one on the outside instead of labeling each individual unit. The other thing that we've seen is we've seen um, lots of challenges with uh, manufacturing of different products that need to be sold together. So we've had customers ship product across the country back and forth and back and forth to both produce and then consolidate and then ship into Amazon. Um, you know, just negotiating your contracts. Um, we've even seen process improvements when you just talk about increasing the minimum order quantities at production time. You know, all of these things can streamline up. Another nice trick is to have your producer um, make your multi-pack rather than your 3PL packing those together. If you know that your multi-pack is going to make money and, and that's where you want to go, you know, if you have them consolidated, usually they can do that in bulk and at a much cheaper price. And they can also provide some stickering that you will need. However, we've also had customers attempt to do that and get the wrong stickering in. So work with your agency before you do it to make sure that the sticker is correct. We've we've had people had to re-sticker products and, and of course there, there goes your margin at that point. Yeah. Um, so ads are something that we can talk about as well, where we think it's really important because ads are something when you think about launching a product, you work through your P&L and you work really hard to minimize the expenses. And what happens is once you put that product into sale, it's almost like that brain switches off and the ad marketing brain starts spending. <laughs> and what that's doing is that's possibly damaging your margin. And so a retrospective P&L is where you do a P&L after you're selling the product and it will take into account coupons, discounts, advertising spend. And then you can kind of see, am I really making the money that I thought I was? And thrown into there are the fee check that we talked about, you know, has Amazon actually been charging me what they should have been charging me? Um, and so Amazon has made that a little bit easier to do. So they um, now have a widget called SKU Economics that you can get by clicking on your SKU listing. And the one thing that we say about Amazon Seller Central widgets is that, again, Amazon's not usually wrong at all. But sometimes when they make these widgets, there are hidden assumptions that they don't make particularly explicit. And so sometimes you can interpret the um, results a little differently than they should be interpreted. So a perfect example of this is that let's say you have t-shirts and you sell them in three sizes, small, medium, and large. And you happen to be advertising on the small. And people click on that small shirt and then buy the large. What it's going to look like is that you're spending a amount of money in advertising on the small and you're not getting the sales. So it's going to make it look like you have poor profitability and too much ad spend on your small products. But really, you got to look at all your sizes together in order to find out if the ad sales for small are resulting in enough sales of large that you're making the money that you want. And so that tool doesn't have that right now. And so it's something to keep in mind when you have similar products, maybe it's flavors, maybe it's sizes, maybe it's colors or patterns that, you know, don't, you know, it's just a, something to take as a grain of salt when you look at it. There are also some account level items that are not included there, such as sponsored brand sales or ad spends or is not included in there. 
Um, so, you know, take a look and um, see if it can help, but just know that there are some caveats for using that for deep analysis on, am I making the money that I want to make? I have a question for my listeners. Are you experiencing cash flow challenges with your Amazon business? Well, silly question. Who is not, right? So let me introduce you to Viably, a unique solution tailored for Amazon sellers and e-commerce enterprises. By connecting your seller central or Shopify account, you can promptly access funding along with a variety of financial tools, all for a flat fee. It's as simple as that. And for my listeners, they are offering an extra $1,500 in funding for eligible applications. Start your quick and easy application today at runviably.com forward slash legends. And that's runviably.com forward slash legends. So, um, Gene, I want to go back to the long-term profitability analysis because yeah. there's a few things that, that you mentioned there that I think is, is significant that every seller needs to at least uh, keep it in the back of their mind. So what you were referring to was you have a product either outside of Amazon that you've been selling and now you want to launch on Amazon or you are launching on Amazon exclusively for the first time, no matter what. It, it doesn't matter. You're launching. Yep. So, and you've got a process that you figured out in terms of producing it, labeling it and shipping and blah, blah to Amazon facility, assuming that you're using FBA, which, you know, FBM, I wouldn't recommend, especially for new operations. So, um, so we're going to go by the assumption that it's FBA anyway. So you've, you've, you figured it out. So what you are saying is, do not think that's the writing on the wall. Always right. be open to modifying your processes, whether it's labeling here, labeling there, or even I'm going to even suggest to you virtual bundles. So rather than have the 3PL or without having any data, creating these packs and bundles. Amazon introduced this, this virtual bundles. It's only available, of course, for brand registered sellers. Right. Uh, but that's our audience. So um, they uh, see what your virtual bundle numbers are. And then go, my favorite story about virtual bundle is it's not about bundling, but it's the same idea. So I worked with this company that sold personalized storybooks. Okay. And this was for kids. So let's mm -hmm. say that you're going to buy a birthday gift or, or something or a starting school uh, for your cousin, nephew, or whatever. So you would have a storybook about them. So you right. could personalize the book. So the book is the same book, but suddenly it becomes a story about you know, your nephew, it's all personalized. So you could, you know, on Amazon, you have this customization capability, so you can create custom orders. This is not for FBA, but it's, it was for FBM because it has to be done one at a time. But the, the, the principle is the same. What we did was they said, okay, how are we going to do this? We're going to have to keep shipping one by one. I said, no, not really. We can use FBA. 
So they said, well, how are we going to use FBA? We have to print every book. I said, exactly. So what we did, we did a little research about the most common names for <laughs> boys and girls. I love it. I love and it. We top six from boys, top yeah. six from girls, pre-printed a it. number of them and created them as variations, select the name and bang, the book which would ship. Except that we added a seventh option. Okay. Order your own, which oh, okay. was the custom FBM option. Right. So, so it, of course, the most popular ones is easy enough. You just pick a number and then you replenish. But the ones that were ordered custom as FBM, we kept an eye. Where right. are the orders coming from? If we didn't have the uh, the the name Alice, for example, for a girl, right. that, and we got so many Alices in one month, and we would say, okay, add Alice to the list, right? <laughs> so, and then we we have a similar story about tablecloths. So we had a high end premium tablecloth seller, and they were selling tablecloths for square tables, round tables, rectangular tables where you could sit six people, eight people, ten people, twelve people, and then they had patterns. And we have the same name problem, but we have a pattern size problem. And we did something very similar. We selectively put items in FBA. We put everything else in FBM, and then we kept an eye on it, see if anything needed to be moved to FBA. So it's it's funny. It's the same strategy that yeah, we independently yeah, yeah. I mean, came so, on. So the moral of the story is always be open to tweaking your process to optimize your profitability, your right. ease of processing so some things you know you may have yeah. six steps you make and cut it down to four steps maybe by doing it certain way so these things will always pay off and uh, that's what you're referring to by long term that's exactly, right that's exactly it and one of the great rules of thumb to kind of keep in mind when you're looking and you're like hey this is my price now this is what my cogs are this is what i can make but i can be better in the future you want to keep in mind that your COGS, you really need to be able to sell something about three times the cost of your COGS, right? Anything less than that. So if the market won't bear a price that's three times the cost of your COGS, so if you have competitors that are seriously undercutting you, or if you just have a very expensive product that people won't pay a premium price for, that we can't really fix with long-term margin optimization. Sure, the game can change. But the optimization that we're talking about is, you know, after you kind of got enough wiggle room where it supports a good investment of growth in the beginning. So at least that's our guidance we give to our, our clients so that they're not surprised. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always say uh, the only constant in Amazon game is change. So change. always be, always be high prepared. five you, Nick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what keeps you young, right? So it you does. just keep it's just keep pushing. So, okay. So uh, now we come to the third bullet about ads. So right. handling your ads. So, so let's we talked talk about, about that. how ads can suck up your margin. And so what I would like to do at this point is bring in my amazing Amazon advertising director. She's been working in advertising in Amazon and related fields for, I think, eight years now. And her name is Karen Springer. So here's Karen. So I want Karen to kind of 
help talk about those nitty gritty details because everybody knows who works in ads is you quickly get down into the campaign types and the terminology and the this and that. And so she can share how she approaches margin optimization for um, different companies. Great. Go I ahead, love, Karen. I love, I, I love teamwork. So welcome to the show, Karen. Great to have <laughs> Thank you. you. Thanks. And, uh, always love hearing straight from the expert. So tell us, so you take over an account. So uh, Gene says to you, hey, Karen, here, we've got a new client. Now, from now on, it's our show. You take the account. What are you looking at? So it depends on if they have just launched and they have no advertising or if they have been established. I look at as far back as we can with data. So one thing, if you're doing your advertising on your brand or, or an, another agency is working on it for you, it's really important that they are pulling um, reporting regularly because Amazon only keeps like 90 days back for advertising specifically. Broad level sales data, it go, can go back life, the lifetime of the account, but advertising is limited. So if you are um, working on it yourself or working on transitioning it to someone else, you want to make sure you have that historical data so that you can look back and the next person who's working on it can tell what worked and what didn't work. And you don't have to retry things that you don't don't work, especially in terms of like seasonality or shopper behavior that changes yearly. Um, you already have that information and you can jump on to the next um, level. Well, I, have, I have a question for you. So mm -hmm. I always tell companies, do not think that your PPC management is something that can run in silo. In other words, it needs to work hand in hand with your listing optimization. And and equally, do not expect your PPC agency to optimize your listings for you. Some agencies will do that, of course, but uh, categorically speaking, PPC management is different than listing optimization. So, uh, and one of the other things that we like being full channel because it gives us those additional levers, right? So Karen can come and say, you know, the hero image isn't converting, but we can also get more complex. For example, if we know that you have a manufacturing problem, you know, there was a hiccup in the supply chain and you're going to run out of product, we can modify our advertising spend so that we can hopefully avoid an out of stock. There are really so many things that work together with advertising. And Karen is constantly retooling her strategy to either deal with Let's say you've got a bunch of products on Amazon, but you want to launch another one and maybe there's cross-selling involved. How do you make that work? Um, how do we deal with, you know, you got to have a product there to sell it to make your advertising work. What happens when you do a rebrand? What happens when you change your packaging? And you're absolutely right, Nick. All of that listing optimization uh, has to work with your PPC agency's work. So Karen, uh, let's assume that you've taken over an account and this, they have some history. They they launched. Let's let's say that yeah. Let's say let's take your typical uh, inexperienced seller that they thought they could do this. They created a listing and they wanted to do it all themselves because it's the beginning. They want to learn it all, and they launched it without really doing the the, the right kind of work. And they ran their PPC 
six months have gone by. Obviously, they're not working and they decided that's it. You know, I'm going to bring somebody. So they now come to you. What is it that you're looking at? Uh, give us some quick, you know, three minute tips. Look at this, look at this. And this would be the thing that, that I would go after. Sure. So um, it, a lot of it is I would be looking at the ad structure isolating your um, targeting by category, match type, um, whether you're looking to discover new terms versus research viable terms versus boost sales through already proven targets. Um, if you have those already set up into buckets, it makes it easy to see what is working and what isn't. And if that's something that they haven't already established, that's something that I would implement. And then after that, I would look at how the account is doing more granularly are there is there room to increase bids based on what amazon recommends for each individual term or category target um is there room to increase budget and now that amazon has these um uh, budget rules where if you if a campaign goes over roas like you can set the roas threshold at three and if the ROAS goes above three for a day to a week at a time, you can increase the budget for that campaign and push sales harder for the ones that are already performing well. Um, that has been kind of a game changer because when you give, when you set that threshold, um, I think Amazon's going to want that campaign to work well. So, because if you, if it works well, then it will spend more money because you've set the the parameters to do that. And so um, that's been something that we've been doing a lot across the board. It's really been working well for a lot of different um, categories and product types. So um, that's one, that's another thing. And then um, another thing that you can always leverage is um, there's a lot of 3P tools that do like automated real-time bid optimizations and that hooks up to your Amazon seller account. And then it can always be optimizing even when you're not working on it. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't check it at least weekly, if not two to three times a week. Um, but at, at a very granular level, it keeps tabs on things so that nothing goes too crazy. Um, and that can help with uh, too much extraneous spend. And then if you do see that, it, you can you can find it rather quickly if you have your advertising set up into those buckets that I talked about. And do, do you ever cross-reference the search query performance data in terms of which keywords are performing well with the purchase rate and the click-through rate versus the PPC performance of those same keywords. So for example, if you are selling, you know, the favorite example of everybody gives garlic crushers or pillow covers. So let's say, say pillow cover. So let's say that you have decorated pillow cover and you are indexed for it. You are bidding on it. And uh, it's one of the main keywords. And when you look at the search query performance, you are seeing low click-through rate and low purchase rate. So do you get more aggressive on the bidding or do you do something else? Yeah. I mean, so, so that's, can I, can I say one thing, Jeannie? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. Um, that's one thing where our agency, um, the, the amount of insight that we have and what we do with 
all of our services is that we can, um, usually if a click-through rate is the problem, we will um, be able to, like a hero image, the hero image might be the problem. If ads are showing up and Amazon has established this as a relevant product for the search term, then maybe it's the hero image that's not drawing the customer in and they're yeah. not clicking. Or maybe it's the bullets or the secondary images that aren't converting it that once they do click through. Right. Or, or maybe so those are the, kinds of the product totally wrong. Sorry, Karen, I just can't help myself. No, that's okay. But, <laughs> okay. but this is like why, why we work as a team, right? Because yes. Karen can say, hey, this is not my problem. You know, because we, you know, if you're a pay-per-click agency, you can only do so much, right? And that click-through rate is really depending on, you know, have you targeted it correctly? You know, is your title compelling? Are your images compelling? Did you hit the whatever is converting the customer correctly. And so, yeah, so usually when that happens, Karen throws it back to the rest of the team and is like, step it up, guys. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Karen. I mean, you know, we, we do, this does not do justice to Karen. Unfortunately, we give her just a few minutes. Uh, but Karen can do, do hours. I would, and I want her to do hours, but she's, you know, <laughs> very busy. Yeah. I actually, you know what happened the other day, and I, and I just threw in search query performance as a curveball. It happens to be my latest favorite subject. But we we did a, an episode. It hasn't aired yet. It's gonna air. We have even a cliffhanger at the end, <laughs> and and it's all about PPC. By the way, uh, it's how to structure your Amazon PPC. And, and then we've got a cliffhanger at the end with a question that will be answered on the second episode with oh, the same it. guest. So this is a deep subject, but, uh, you know, I'm, we're going to have to move on to the fourth point. And, and I want to thank Karen for bringing the perspective. So uh, bottom line, nothing is in silo. Everything is working together, right? And uh, advertising yeah. is, is the ongoing efforts to uh, optimize your margins constantly. Right. One of the other mm -hmm. things that Karen didn't touch on, Karen, if you need to leave, thank you so much, is tacos versus ROAS. I know it's a huge thing, but Karen has talked to us endlessly about if you look at tacos, you can you can essentially calculate your spend better and kind of know how your spend is going to affect margin because you don't have to wait for that 14-day attribution window that um, will attribute your ad spend to a sale. You can say, look, I sold this many items in a month and this is my ad budget. And so you can kind of amortize that into your margin calculation to say, okay, that's my margin, here are my ads. If you're looking at it from a ROAS point of view, ROAS is just attributing your ad spend to whatever is sold with advertising. And that 15 day lag window really disrupts the cadence of business. Right. Yeah. And so so that's just another tip for like if you're trying to control your margins, tacos versus ROAS, you know, everybody's talking about it now, but it's just another reason to use tacos. Yeah. Well, you know what we track? Yeah, we, we've got a, a, a dashboard type uh, reporting vehicle, so to speak, uh, that I track three buckets. Okay. Paid sales. Organic sales, mm -hmm. external sales, okay. and then the the share of each bucket compared to the total as dollar value and as traffic. Okay. 
So that tells you a lot of things. If your sales value is 50-50, well, let's just, most people have very little external. So let's let's give external 10%. And okay. then let's say um, you have 45-45 and 10%. And 60% of your traffic is coming organically. That tells you something. 40% of your traffic is coming organically. That tells you another. So we produce that report every week. And then every week we're looking at the, the share of those three buckets in terms of dollar value and in terms of traffic. And uh, of course, in that somewhere we have Tecos, uh, ROAS, and yeah. also ACOS. You know, what I like about what you're doing, Nick, is you're making it simpler because one of the big challenges is just knowing how much money you're making on Amazon. Amazon does not make it particularly transparent. One of yeah. the things that you can do is you can look at your monthly PDF one sheet statement from Amazon and they have buckets there. And one of the real challenges with trying to use that information in your retrospective P&L is that some of the things that Amazon says group buckets that are too big, right? So for example, FBA fees and inventory shipments are all kind of lumped together. But if you, for example, needed to have a big removal order, that will be lumped in with your regular fees and it doesn't split it out. But it's really important to know that you just didn't have a bad margin month. There was a hiccup in your supply chain. So, um, so I really like how you've made this complicated business simple, right? Look at these three things. They each mean something, and that helps people keep on top of the margin. I mean, what we do mostly for our clients is we almost, you know, run defense against Amazon for them, right? You know, we got to grow their sales, make sure they're making money, and making it easy to, for them to make decisions is part of what we do. And what you've just told me is a great way to like help people get their head around all the complexity we're talking about. You know, uh, I, I like the number three because three is easy to remember. Two is too yeah. few to take seriously. One is never enough. And four is too many to be able to remember afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so three. Yeah. So I give you another one that I do. Three. So um, when I'm integrating all the Amazon financial data into my account, I have three GL codes. Okay. General in my chart of accounts, three GL codes for Amazon. Very simple. Item-based FBA fees. Okay. Amazon storage. Yeah. Everything else. Okay. Yeah. Amazon commission, 15%. That's a fourth one, but that doesn't count. That's separate. So... Because that's always the same, 15%, no matter what, uh, unless it's like one of those other categories. Uh, so in my unit economics model, I also have the same uh, approach with three yeah. tiers. First of all, first bucket, cost of goods sold. That's your landed cost. Second one is Amazon commission. Third one is fulfillment fees. Oh. Okay. Fulfillment Got fees. It. So... I have a very strict approach to planning the model and then tracking it against my PNL. PNL has to be set up exactly in the same structure. Now, what I tell my clients is this: look, cost of goods sold, Amazon commission, and fulfillment. Take those out, 
you've got to have 50% net left. Now, if you do that, this is what you're shooting for. You're going to spend in the short term, doesn't matter with advertising because you're going to have to do whatever it takes. But in the long term, you want about no more than 15% take off. Okay. Take that away from the 50. You're left with 50, uh, 35. Yeah. You're going to spend about 5% of the top on everything else that I mentioned. Yeah. FBA. That leaves you with 30%. And then let's say you allow some percentage depending on the category for returns. Yep. That means in this model, say 10%, that yeah. leaves you with 20% net, net, net after everything. That's a healthy model. So that's why in the uh, if, uh, fee analysis, I go item-based FBA, storage, because storage is a big driver, and uh, everything else. Yep. And on the overall unit, cost of goods sold, Amazon commission, and yep. item-based FBA fee. No, I like uh, it. So with those, yeah. it, you can have a pretty good handle on things. Yeah, no, I like it. I mean, and that, that also brings up the storage fees are really important. One of the things that we also do with our long-term clients as they develop a steady cadence where they're shipping enough to Amazon, you know, the, the orders are big and they're coming frequently, is how frequently do you ship in Amazon? We really don't really want you to ship more than like every other week. Because once you start shipping every other week, small hiccups in your process, you know, can all of a sudden push one week shipping out to the next and there's a bit of a domino effect. And we find that with smart planning and including the desired buffer of time, basically the time that you want it to say, sit in Amazon while you have a buffer for variability in customer sales um, and um, inventory projections, which we do for our clients that are SKU-based, that, that that's kind of a, an optimal place to go where you're managing, again, these intangibles. This is kind of the art of Amazon. You know, like ideally you want them to spend no time in storage, but the reality is, you know, you've been in transportation, right? Things happen, you know, and you have to build realistic models, but there are ways and goals that we can, you know, kind of optimize that. But but kind of every other week is kind of what we really target, not any faster than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. Another thing that when you're shipping every other week, instead of sending one big humongous shipment, send and multiple small ones, right? So because something happens to that one big shipment, everything else will get held up. Oh, we've, we've done all kinds of things with shipping. Yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, the pandemic was an interesting challenge, you know, around shipping um, for all sorts of reasons. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, uh, this is a great conversation. We can never cover enough, but uh, unfortunately, time only allows so much. So, yeah, now we've come to the favorite part of the show that I like the most uh, about getting to know my guests. So tell us about Jean. Who is Jean Stamberger? Where did she grow up? What did she want to do? And is she doing what she wanted to do all the time? Oh, Nick, that's so much. Uh, so, so I was born in Illinois, uh, but I grew up in Geneva, Switzerland until I was nine. So my father worked for an American company, but, and so we lived overseas and I went to a British school, 
you know, with the children of bankers, ambassadors, diplomats, it was a very interesting childhood. I had a, a British accent as a small child. <laughs> and I, I later went to Oxford University as a college student. Um, and it came back, which my sisters teased me mercilessly about. Um, I was always interested in biology. I thought I fell into it. And my family's like, oh, no, you liked bugs and mushrooms and always were trying things. And so I uh, I went to school. I took every biology class I could. I was taking graduate level biology classes because they were fun. You know, we got to go to University of Washington's Friday Harbor Lab and, you know, we were studying algae. We were skinny dipping in blue green algae that would glow. We went to Australia and were documenting fish. It was an awesome time. So I went to graduate school um, after that, and I started in marine biology, and then I switched to alpine, so working in the mountains. And it's not an unusual switch um, because you're looking at changes across space, right? So if you're looking at the edge of the ocean, you know, if you're at the bottom where the water is, that's really wet. And then as you go up the inner tidal, you get drier and drier and drier. It's a climb, they call it. And so I was doing the same thing in the mountains. As you go up in elevation, everything changes. So I loved it, um, and, but I didn't like the politics of academia. It's a solo approach, right? It really is. Being a scientist is kind of an individual event, and things have changed, but I love my team at, at Alpha Zeta Management, and I love working with them, and I feel that we can do more together than an individual can do when we hear about companies trying to do this in-house, I'm like, I don't know how you could do this in-house because I'm like, you know, I, you know, we have Karen who's amazing in advertising. We have Jen Garza who does shipments. We have Jenny who does this. Like, I don't know how a single person could do it. So anyway, but that's jumping ahead. So I, I left that and um, I ended up working as a, a biologist for a, a corporation that builds big buildings. They worked on the Panama Canal. So I worked for the on the Delta smelt. It's an endangered species in California. And we were building this awesome model about what happens if there's an earthquake, what happens if sea level rises, and kind of combining how we build buildings with how we um, save fish and deliver water to Los Angeles. Then I got into disaster management because I build tools with the computer science department at Stanford University during my biology degree. We worked together. It was really fun because... We were trying to take their tools out into the wild and ask them crazy questions like about museum specimens that you catch it, you know, and then you need to have that information be able to be documented and available for 100 years, maybe 300 years, maybe 500 years. And this is blowing the computer scientist's mind because to them, a computer program, a data storage that is six months old is kind of obsolete, you know. So this idea of like, Having to work on these unusual problems is really interesting. And a lot of it lent itself to disaster response. So I ended up working at Carnegie Mellon in Silicon Valley as a professor. And we were doing this great thing where we were getting together computer scientists and venture capitalists and researchers and the police and the firefighters all together to discuss how to make this better. And it was awesome. And that's kind of the beginning of like bringing these amazing talents together, trying to nurture them so that we you know, can make something big. Um, and then uh, I, I got married and I had a child and my husband built spaceships. And so we moved to Colorado so he could build the Mars InSight rover. <laughs> and 
but then I was like out of a job, you know, because I left, I, I was working in aid in Africa. We had a $32 million USAID grant to improve resilience in sub-Saharan Africa. And it was awesome, but I couldn't do it with small children and my husband working on spaceships. And so this is how I ended up in the position I had because my sister called me up and she's like, Jeannie, I make food. I need you to sell it on Amazon. Hey, you're smart. You do data. That was kind of what she said to me. You do data. And I worked for her and we quickly realized it made no sense to do this in-house because it required so much education. Just like you were saying, the only thing constant about Amazon is change. So we spun it off as a consulting firm and it's just been it's just been fun. It's We have this amazing team. Really, this is all about my team, not me, because they're so good. Um, and they just, uh, we get into problems. We've worked with clients for many years. We've helped them through CEO changes, packaging changes, you know, changes in venture capital funding, the pandemic. Um, and we help them through the whole thing and give them year over year growth. And it's just really fun. So sorry, I'm monologuing, Nick. Sorry. Look, look, you know, there there is like two guys talking and one of them is telling the other a story and then. And then this guy is listening and listening and listening. I feel like that guy is like everything that he hears is like sounds unreal. Like how can one person do so much? <laughs> my husband will build spaceship that does the Mars rover, and then I'm I'm working with this thirty-two billion dollar fund. One thing I hear, yeah, is driving this, and that's yeah. what I want to know. What where? it is coming from mm-hmm. it's like this impact but not small but big big impact where did you get bitten by that bug oh i really don't i th- i think i've just always been that way we used to play violin or i was speaking publicly like at college and somebody asked my dad you know well how did you get your daughter to be able to speak publicly and he's like i don't know we have no idea you know i think it was just the way I was built. And I'm, you know, um, I think I have a strong, uh, strong sense of justice. Um, every time that I saw injustice as a child, I would get really upset. Um, I didn't feel like I had a lot of power, but I, you know, had a lot of motivation to correct something that I thought was wrong. And it's it's interesting, like when you come to Amazon, how do you make an impact? I think we're just scratching the surface of impact. I think one of the things but I'm that- not interested, you know, I'm not interested in Amazon. What I'm yeah. interested in is what got you into this, because whatever got you into this now led you to Amazon. And I'm sure there are other things coming your way. So uh, that justice, that's an interesting way to put it. So yeah. did you like witness a major injustice or mm. did somebody do injustice to okay. you? I can remember something when I was very little. Okay, when I was very little, and I think I was in kindergarten or the first grade at the British elementary school, there was a a girl who had some sort of mental disability. Um, It may have been Down syndrome, you know, no one really knew or talked about it. And there um, there was a kid who was making fun of her on the playground. And it still makes me upset. I'm still like tearing up to think about it. I got so angry. I just didn't think it was fair. Um, see, there I go. Um, so that happened. And that was like one trigger that I can remember where I wanted to change that. And I saw it as something that was wrong, right? It was just wrong. And I wanted to make it better. Does that help? 
yeah funny i'm like tearing up nick you just said it i mean that's that's what it is so you you still you're living that moment of seeing that mentally disabled kid being treated she was not being treated like a person and she was a person and she was lovely and what they were doing was mean and wrong and so yeah so i guess maybe that's a thread you know throughout what we we try to treat people like people that's really important you know we you know, through everything I've done, um, you know, it's funny, like there's always, you can work with the most amazing people, but when you work with lots of people, sometimes there can be that one jerk and that one jerk can kind of poison the culture. Right. right. So part of the reason why I got to where I am, was to be able to protect my world, my people's world from those, that poison. Right. Um, to to me, you're still protecting that little girl. Right. That you identify whatever it is that comes your way as that little girl. And then you take that uh, protective role and try to provide something that will make that impact. You were good, Nick. I t- how much do I pay for this <laughs> therapy session? This is fantastic. I never heard that perspective. That's you awesome. know... You, you know, I, I have to say this, that uh, I've never been like this at all until I started this podcast. Yeah. And the person who got me into this, uh, that I hired, you know, they said, oh, we'll do everything for you. We'll bring the guest and then we'll produce it. We'll post it. You don't have to do anything. You just host. And I said, okay, so, and I'm always looking to improve myself and learn. I say, so what is the right way to do a podcast? Mm. And and then he said, look, he gave it to me very simple. He said, what you're going to tell the guests is, first, we're going to learn from you. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to learn about you. Got it. And that's how you have your conversation. So I just built from there. And uh, so now I say it to everybody every time. My favorite part of the show is first of all, to come into contact with people like you, well-educated, well-traveled, you know, uh, humble, accomplished, <clears throat> to have a conversation with people like that is not easy because the, the, not too many people exist that way. So the second thing is their life experiences. You know, we are our past. Right. We are living our past. Yeah. So... Whatever has conditioned us Mm. to be who we are, it happened in the early years. Yeah. And if you can understand what happened, you will understand where the person is going to go. So Mm. that's really where I'm coming from. And so when he said, learn about you, that's the best way to learn about someone. Let's discuss, you know, when was the first time? And you cannot believe the number of stories I got uh, to, to this day. I think we've gone over 170 recorded episodes and it's 170 stories of individuals, entrepreneurs. I've heard stories about one guest. His father was always telling him, you'll never succeed at anything. You'll never mm-hmm. succeed at anything. And as a kid, he grew up purposely building companies and purposely bankrupting 
just to prove his father was correct. Oh, jeez. Only one day when he realized he was in debt, he was bankrupt himself personally, he said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. And that's when he realized and he changed his life and things like that. So it's what happens in the early life that drives us. And in your case, I can see that you still are, you are purposely looking for those little girls that need <laughs> protection. And then you're taking them under your wings. And uh, uh, it's, it's admirable because this, again, going back to the story I said at the beginning, offer me money. Offer me reward, offer me fame. Doesn't matter, right? Doesn't You're going to keep going yeah. in this direction. Yeah. It's a great conversation, very touching. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm so happy that we well, met. Thank you so and much. It was so much fun. And I love talking with you. You're a wonderful host. And I really oh, appreciate thank you. it. Thank you. So we both enjoy it. That's why we, we both enjoy it. So, <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully uh, there will be more. So tell us, how can people reach you? Uh, what is the best way to get in touch? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, Jeannie Stamberger, or you can find us at alphazetamanagement.com. Um, and send me a line at genie at alphazetamanagement.com if you want to get a hold of me directly or message me on LinkedIn. And I would, you know, happy to chat and we're always happy to help and put you under our little wing. But, we'll, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll, yeah. well, when we do that, people thrive, you know? So, so that's the reward, you know? Yeah. I heard this from a politician a long time ago. Rising tide lifts all boats. Right? Yes. I love it. Absolutely. So uh, thank you. And I'm sure you'll hear from people. And thank you for doing what you're doing. And keep going. And uh, thank you for awesome, being Awesome, Lick. Thank you so much. Before I go, a quick reminder to say goodbye to your cash flow problems and claim your extra $1,500 when you qualify for $25,000 or more in funding. Go to www.runviably.com forward slash legends and start your application today. This brings us to the end of another episode and I'll see you on the next. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the episode and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.